Hello, everyone. It's great to have you with us. This is Mary Beth Gassman, and I am the executive director of the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice. And we are sponsoring this podcast today, the Varying Viewpoints podcast. Thank you to those of you who have listened before and to the new listeners. Welcome. We're excited to have you here with us. A little bit of background about me. I am a professor at Rutgers University and I am a historian, which will become more relevant for our talk today. And I am really, really excited to have someone who I admire immensely with us. And that is uh, Chris Spann. Uh, and welcome, Chris. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you. And uh, Chris, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself? Because, you know, you used to be just a professor, but now you have many titles. And I'd love to know a little bit. I would love for you to tell people a little bit more about that. No, no, not a problem. Uh, I am a professor still uh, in the College of Education at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I, too, am also a historian of education like you, Mary Beth. Uh, my um, primary focus is the African-American educational experience. But um, most recently, uh, I became the chief of staff for the chancellor at the university and associate chancellor for administration and pre-K through 12 education initiatives. Oh, my gosh. So you're pretty busy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, all the power to you. I give you a lot of credit for doing all of that uh, administrative work. You're a better person than me. Um, so uh, I've got a bunch of questions to ask you about your work today. And I, I kind of wanted to start off because I'm always interested in why people um, become faculty. And we have a lot of people who are listening, who might be thinking about becoming a faculty member. And so I'd love to hear just a little bit more about your background and also what prompted you to become a faculty member, especially um, a historian of uh, education? Uh, well, one, I appreciate the question. It's, it's one that I've actually, um, uh, answered quite a few times because I, I remind a lot of people that I uh, originally wanted to be, become a high school history teacher, and I settled on becoming a college professor. And what I mean by that is I was admitted to the University of Illinois um, in 1990, so just to reveal a little bit of my age there. And I, my dad always wanted me to be an engineer, so I was admitted in engineering at the university. But I only stayed like 45 minutes in engineering. I took the calculus class and was like, there's no way I'm doing this the rest of my life. It wasn't that I couldn't do the math. I just didn't want to do it the rest of my life. I always wanted to be a history teacher, um, but I never had the courage to tell my family that I wanted to do it. So I just bounced around college for a few years um, trying to figure out what I would do. And then when I finally decided I'm going to do it, I'm going to go over to college education, figure out what it would take for me to be a high school history teacher. They explained to me I had to take all these courses that should have started my freshman year. So I'd have to stay in college a couple of extra years just to make up the coursework. And it was at that point, um, I was in a class called the Foundations of American Education. And uh, an old Greek guy was teaching it by the name of Paul Violas. He had such a wonderful disposition and he asked just wonderful questions. Uh, what's the meaning of education? Why do we have schools? Why do some people have better schools than others? And I started to spark 
uh, up a lot of conversation after the class period with him. And he informed me that he was a historian of American education. And I was like, well, what is that? And he started to explain it to me. And I said, well, how do you, how do you become that? And then he started to explain it to me. I'm first generation college, so I, I really didn't know anything even about graduate school. And it was here in this moment that I discovered this whole new world that you didn't necessarily have to go teach in a high school to teach history, that you could do it at the college level. And more importantly, Violas introduced me to the idea that it's one thing to teach history. It's another thing to uh, go into the archives, study those sources, and then apply and make meaning of them through research and scholarship. And that to me was the most empowering thing about the process. And that made me want to become a college professor. And so my kind of shift from wanting to teach high school, and I still want to teach high school, um, you know, I, I don't know why, <laughs> tell you the truth. I don't know if I would, I don't know if I'd be very good uh, in that regard, but the shift happened in that moment that decided, I, I think I want to be a, a college professor now. And that's what put me on the path. And I would say that, honestly, every day that I've, been on the job since I've earned my doctorate, even before when I was just TAing um, the foundations of American education. TA meaning being a teaching assistant for a professor who taught the class. Uh, I don't feel like I've been to work a day of my life. And so I, I feel very privileged to have this job, have this opportunity, and be able to re research our American past and try to make meaning of it so everyday people can understand not only what happened, but what is possible through understanding what happened. Oh, thank you. And you know what? I love that you said so that everyday people can understand because I think, um, you know, I'm a little biased here, but I think that that the way historians do research and the way that they write is is really beautiful and easy to understand. And that's something that I've always loved about your work is that, um, you know, I can fully engage with it uh, even if I'm not, let's say, an expert in, in the area, I feel like I can fully engage with it. So I, I, I appreciate that about you. Um, and, uh, and thank you for saying that you are first generation as well. I think that's important for people to hear. Um, I am also first generation and a college student. And I, all of those things that you were talking about uh, in terms of like asking, well, how do you become that? I, I remember <laughs> going into a faculty member's office and saying, um, what's an endowed chair and how did you become that? And what does that involve? <laughs> you know, I had no idea. And, um, and it, I, I, I'm sure you remember this person. It was Asa Hilliard. Mm -hmm. who, um, you know, the um, amazing, amazing scholar. And I just went in and asked him, what, what is that like? And what is your life like? And I think um, as first generation folks, we really have to ask those questions. You know, we have to, and we have to share that we're first generation so that others will feel a little bit more comfortable asking those kinds of questions. So. No, I agree with you 110%. Thank you. Um, okay, so uh, you kind of told us how you, you know, became a faculty member and, and the motivations and things, but can you talk a little bit more about um, your research interests, especially your current research projects, and um, just kind of, you know, what are you working on uh, right now? What's going on? Yeah, you know, being an administrator is uh, a 28-hour-a-day job, <laughs> and so um, it keeps me uh, from doing the kind of research that I want, but nonetheless, I still sneak in those moments of motivation 
uh, an inspiration to do research. And uh, prior to uh, taking on this new administrative role, I was working on two book projects. Uh, one is, um, it's a series of essays um, it, that pertains to the conversations that I've had or the dialogues that I've had with with regards to race in America. And so going through the 20 odd years that I have taught uh, in higher education and done research in higher education on the, the very subject of race and how those dialogues and conversations have not only um, shaped my understanding, but have helped shape other people's understanding to realize that um, race as it currently exists doesn't have to exist and that we can mold it and modify it to something that is um, uh, of greater uh, benefit and less harm. And what I mean by that is there are things to be celebrated about having one's own unique, distinctive personality or identity in this country. Um, you know, some of this was born out of struggle and prejudice and degradation. If you just think about what it means to be black in America. But nonetheless, it was African-Americans themselves that created a culture um, that not only was to be embraced and appreciated, uh, but was to be shared and valued. And And I, I gained that understanding from my own family. Um, most of my people on my dad's side are from the state of Mississippi, and they shared their stories of what it meant to, to be and to become someone uh, with every generation of youth that was willing to listen. And I was uh, part of that um, um, intergenerational conversation as to what it meant. And so to come from people who, you know, worked in cotton fields during slavery, mm -hmm. who wailed and moaned blues, uh, who generations later would pick up guitars and, and tell those stories through the blues, and generations even later than that listen to those stories and share them with their youth, and me being one of those individuals, I think that's that's the story to be told when it comes to race, uh, that there's something exceptional about the American narrative when it comes to race, but there's also a nightmare um, that we still live. And so getting rid of the nightmare, um, but helping people understand um, the strength and the legacy that has come from everyday people developing their own identities, I think that's the, the power of that first research project. So it's, a, it's about having dialogues and conversations about race and helping people overcome the difficulty of those things. Uh, the second, which is much slower because I'm just in the archives uh, doing it, is uh, looking at education as a fundamental right in, in the United States. And in my previous research efforts, I had discovered that we had made a couple attempts to actually uh, make education a fundamental right. It never got beyond conversation. It never got to a, a point of, let's put it to the floor of Congress, uh, or let's discuss this as a constitutional amendment. But in this day and age where we recognize how education is the very foundation of potential opportunity and progress in society, um, it would be wonderful if we can actually have a 28th amendment of uh, where education is a fundamental right. It's guaranteed and protected by law, no different than any other of our constitutional rights. And we can put it forward. So to use the past to help people understand uh, how to, you know, in the present, present that argument um, and ideally make it a reality in the future. That's that's the second book project that I'm working on. Wow. So uh, those are pretty big projects. Do you think you'll be working on them for a while or? 
I will, I will be very old <laughs> or very motivated. All right, all right. Um, so, you know, speaking of some of those topics, um, so, you know, I know that you understand, um, because I've read uh, quite a bit of your work. In fact, I think I've read almost the majority of it that, you know, you know, the details of the America's kind of deep racist history and how those issues continue to manifest in society. And I guess I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we could apply historic knowledge to our daily lives in order to make change. Like, are there ways that we can do that? Oh, absolutely. And and I do just want to add one caveat to the first research project. The first one won't take that long, the, the rethinking race, having conversations about race. These are, it's truly meant to be a dialogue. And so that one won't take as long as the first project. But, but to get to your question about whether uh, as a historian, we can use the past to create meaningful change or understand how to create meaningful change. I think the short answer is absolutely yes. And I'll, I'll give you two examples. Um, on the one hand, uh, history helps us better understand and explain the racial value and opportunity gaps that we have in our society. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, just as we were talking about being first generation college students, what we learned really quick were there were some questions that we had to ask and answer that other people around us who weren't first generation college students never had to ask or mm -hmm. answer. And, and if they did, they could go home and, and ask and answer those questions in ways that we couldn't go home and ask our family members these things because they didn't have the experience right. uh, to provide the answer. When we think about conversations about race or the way that we have this deep uh, racist history, uh, most Americans are not informed to understand how to ask and answer those questions. We've all experienced it. So we have our own anecdotal data. We have our own experiential knowledge, but we don't necessarily understand uh, how long standing it is um, or how deep it goes. You're talking to me right now, and I'm in my late 40s. I was born in 1972, but I was part of the first generation of Americans born where slavery and segregation by law did not exist. And if you think about just that window of time, if you take a panoramic view of that kind of consideration, that means that the founding of, of Virginia was in 1607, and the first Africans would arrive in Virginia in 1619. And so there's this... Uh, 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 controversy, dialogue, whatever you want to call it around the 1619 project, right? But all I'm saying is that's 400 years. <laughs> and so literally, I'm the first generation of Americans, not African-Americans, Americans born where slavery and segregation by law did not exist. And I would say I'm not that old. You know, I'm, I'm a half century old or will be a half century old at that point. But how did we get to the point that we have these racial value gaps or opportunity gaps that seem to exist? But well, they start at the earliest of those days from 1619 forward, and they just become cumulative over time. But the average American doesn't understand that history. We've never been taught that history. But yet, by having a basic understanding of that history, we could systematically go through the process of trying to dismantle racism in America. And so there's something foundational about having a sense of history that explains what has caused our society harms and problems. 
But using that information and knowing that information also gives us the wherewithal to do something about it. Case in point, we have uh, clearly had slavery in our society. We've had segregation by law in our society. They don't exist anymore. How are they dismantled, right? Who dismantled them? How did people go about the process? How long did it take? What would we gain by having a meaningful understanding around these issues? And how would that help us understand these things to present day? There are still questions that some groups in this country have to ask and answer that other groups simply don't have to ask and answer. And sometimes we use language like privilege and disadvantage to describe these groups. But in many ways, it's that basic minimal knowledge that we have on the very issue that keeps us from advancing collectively in society. So I think somewhere in there, we have to decide as a nation, will we own our past? Will we acknowledge it? And in the process of acknowledging it, will we begin to educate our youth and really redevelop language that will humanize our, our people in our society who had been dehumanized by the history? And it's through those efforts that we'll reach reconciliation and we'll have a different outcome. That meaningful change can happen, but we have to create that change. And we're not quite equipped, we're not knowledgeable enough as a society, as everyday people, to really go through those steps and push the envelope to achieve that outcome. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Chris, I, I have a question just um, that I'm thinking of from your from your discussion, and that is, you know, you're, from what I've seen in the past and from what I just listened to, you are really good at having conversations in a very thoughtful way with people about race. And I'm just kind of wondering, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're having a conversation with someone who fundamentally disagrees with you about, let's say, for example, doesn't believe that, uh, just for example, African-Americans um, still uh, undergo, you know, fairly extensive discrimination and oppression in America. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? And I'm just curious um, what you might say to somebody like that. I hope I am not putting you too much on the spot, but just from what you said, I'd love to know, uh, given the way that you were talking, how you might have a conversation with someone. No, you raise an excellent point. Like uh, many of these conversations, like if, if, you know, start at home with family and, you know, I'm I'm actually biracial. I'm half Irish American, half African American, and on my mom's side, the Irish American side, uh, she was the first in the family to have a child outside of uh, what they would call a racial group. <laughs> you know, and uh, she loved my dad to death, but they could never be together because of the way race played itself out in society. So, not just being the first generation of Americans born when slavery and segregation didn't exist by law, but being the first generation of biracial children born where it was still pretty much taboo for blacks and whites to have a meaningful relationship. And so coming of age as a child, um, I learned to cut my teeth on these conversations with my uh, grandparents, with my aunts, my uncles, um, and my grandparents are no longer living, but my aunts and uncles love me to death um, to this present day, you know, but uh, they always had a sense of discomfort whenever I was around. I was I was always a reminder of what was different in their family, and my mom was the reason for it. And as a child, you don't quite understand that. But here was kind of the earliest examples and representations 
of me trying to understand race in America and trying to do it with the very people that I care deeply for, you know, family members that you want to have um, love and um, adoration from, you know, in this regard. The challenge was when I got to my 20s, I pretty much had gave up on them. I'm like, these people are just hardcore racist. I'm not going to try this anymore. Uh, but you can realize just the evolution of a person's mind, right? As a, From a child, you have a certain mind where you're in your teens and 20s, you know it all. And by the time you get into your 30s, uh, you've had time to reflect on all these things. And you're now seeking reconciliation as well because you started to practice the very habits and behaviors that you despised from the people who were treating you a certain way. And it was there that we started to have dialogue and conversation. We started to have an understanding. The irony is I'm the first generation to go to college. That means I'm both sides of my family. So now I have cousins or nieces and nephews and they're like, hey, you need to go hang around your cousin Chris or your uncle Chris because he seemed to have figured his college thing out. Not only did he go to college, he he damn near lives there now. He's a college professor, you know? And so somewhere in there, they could see value in me for what I was doing, but they couldn't see it when I was just their colored nephew. Is, that was the term that they would use or colored grandson. And so that's where I cut my teeth. But here's the interesting thing. The conversations had to happen and they went along this way. Every time someone says something about, say, a group that objectified that group, that racialized that group, uh, that dehumanized that group, I was quick to speak up and they had to defend their position. And at a certain point, it was one opinion against another. But as I began to study the past and really understand how these things happen, even how we were conditioned to think this way. Like if you were in American South, for example, you would see signs on the walls that would say for whites only, for coloreds only, that you are being conditioned to think and act and behave in a certain way. And if you step outside those boundaries, there would be consequences. Well, they had those in states like Illinois and Indiana, Wisconsin, but they didn't have the signs on the walls. There were these unspoken rules and people did not cross those lines. They were, they were literally barriers that people wouldn't cross. But once you are forced to have to cross those lines or endure that space, that's when you begin to see the real change. So asking them, why do you think this way? How do you feel this way? Tell me what your evidence is. I'm going to tell you what my evidence is, and I'm going to walk them through that process. I'll never forget one conversation that I had. I remember I was talking with a cousin of mine, and he um, uh I was telling him about the African-American experience. I grew up in Gary, Indiana, and how economically depressed Gary, Indiana is. And it's literally uh, all black and brown city now. But at the time I was coming up, it was just disproportionately black. Um, and the economy was, was just in shambles, and it's non-existent now. And he said, well, it, it must not have been that bad because you made it. And I said, what? And he said, you know, you made it, so it must not have been that bad. And I remember asking him, and I had a colleague who asked this question, and I borrowed it from my colleague, Jim Anderson. Here, He had asked this question at one point, and this is what I mean by using the past to understand the present. I said, would you, would you judge the Holocaust by the number of people who died or the number of people who escaped? And he said, well, I would judge it by the number of people who died. I said, well, why are you judging me? Because I escaped Gary, Indiana, you know? I escaped the poverty that I was saying that we should do some systematic interrogation of to rid the city of so everyday people could have better opportunities and better better livelihoods. I said, 
it's easy to say, well, if Chris Band made it, it must not have been that bad. But we wouldn't do that in any other episode of American history. We wouldn't say that about the Holocaust. We wouldn't say that about um, Tiananmen Square. We wouldn't say that about, you know, the Southern whites in the Civil War, for example. <laughs> you know, so how is it all of a sudden acceptable to say it in this moment when you want to dismiss the impact of race or the impact of poverty and race in society? Well, it took my understanding of the American past to be able to draw that connection. And my cousin got it immediately. He, he paused for a second. He says, you know what? You're right. Like my first instinct was to just be retaliatory with you and just say, you don't know what you're talking about. He said, but I do know you and I do know that you're talk what you're talking about. And so I need I need to understand a little bit more. Can you help me understand a little bit more? And that was the window of opportunity. So I think we have to find where is that common ground? Because, you know, even now, as polarized as our society is today, I think the one blessing is, is that I can still go to family. We can cut through all the noise and nonsense. We're probably still not going to vote for the same president of the United States. But nonetheless, we're going to have kind of that one meaningful conversation. And if I could get them when they're in their everyday lives to be a bit more intentional uh, of their actions and activities toward people who are different than themselves, to see others as they would want to see themselves, I think that is my job as a professor and an educator, particularly someone who teaches on the subject of race. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. I knew that you would have a great answer to that question. So thank you. And I love the example that you gave. That was really, um, really, really profound. Um, so kind of talking more um, about the past and what's been happening today. Um, you know, often we see history repeat itself, in fact, a little too often for my liking. Um, but you know, from uh, civil rights movement to Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, um, you know, you, you, it sometimes it's just daunting that African Americans in particular and other racial and ethnic groups as well are um, still uh, out fighting for basic, what I would consider pretty much basic rights, right? And I'm just wondering uh, the civil rights movement, Black Lives Matter movement, um, is this a, is this a different time now or are, are people asking for pretty much the same thing? Have things evolved from your perspective? What, what, what do you think? Well, I, I think, you know, at a, I think the short answer is we are still asking and answering the same questions, but each generation has to ask and answer it on their own terms. And so from the civil rights movement to the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, at the crux of both of those, you know, important episodes in American history is the argument and the demand that pretty much people who are not white in America, and I would even add a caveat, who's not white middle class in America, be fully included into society. And then I would add even a caveat who's not white, middle class, heterosexual, Protestant, be fully included in society. And so you see kind of this push for the fullest of inclusion in society and people clamoring to dismantle what it means to not be included, to not have a sense of safety, to not have a sense of self uh, in this regard. So the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that have come from it 
Um, I see similarities to the civil rights movement and it starts with intentionality, like very intentional people are determined to make sure that people, regardless of background, will have better opportunities as they go forward in society and life. And that intentionality is absolutely essential for uh, um, a moment to move to a movement and a movement to move to something that's revolutionary and systemic. And so you have to keep that intentionality and it has to be longstanding. Uh, the second thing is um, both the civil rights movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, they they really believe that what can be learned can be unlearned. So if we'd learned um, uh, harmful thoughts or practices or habits when it comes to race or gender or sexuality or, or socioeconomic status or just difference, right? Um, then, then how do we unlearn those things, right? Or how do we learn them different? One exercise I always do in my class, almost as an icebreaker, um, is I'm trying to gauge what racial knowledge do my students know on the very first week of class. And so I'll, I'll, I'll give them a quiz. It's not graded. And I ask them not to answer it out loud. I just need them to answer it in their own mind and then answer the question I'm going to ask at the end. And so the first thing I ask them is, uh, name five famous African-Americans in the 19th century. Name, fa name five famous Native Americans that's not in a Walt Disney movie. Name five famous working class people. Name five famous women in the 19th century. Name five famous Latino or Latinas in society. Now give them a second. And I say, well now, name five stereotypes about African-Americans. Name five stereotypes about Native Americans. Name five stereotypes about women or Latinos and Latinas or working class people or people with disabilities or people from the LGBTQ community. And if you can name more the negative than you can the positive, that's telling you something. But the ultimate question I want to ask you is, what do you want to know more of? Do you want to know more of the negative or do you want to know more of the positive? Do you want to know more of the stereotypes or more of the contributions? Do you want to know more of the ways people have been systematically harmed? And continue to be harmed or you want to know ways that they have been harmed and we can dismantle those harms so they can have the fullest sense of opportunity in life and so because if you know more about the stereotypes than you do about the contributions and you're in college now what does that tell you about our education system and what you've been taught up to this point like no no knock on the qual quantitative reasoning general education requirements that we have at, at universities like you got to take calculus no knock on it, but I'm never going to use calculus again. <laughs> I am going to go out and engage difference. And I'm not quite sure why we don't have general education requirements that teach us about identity and difference in America. And so because you're clearly not getting that at the K through 12 education system, which we should. But since we're not, the obligation now falls on higher education to train the next generation of leaders and citizens to be prepared to engage whatever walks through the door, whoever walks through the door, and know how to make it an opportunity for everybody. But if we only know the stereotypes and we don't know any of the contributions, that's what we're starting with. And so I think those are the things is that history keeps repeating itself because we haven't properly educated one generation to the next how to think different about each other. The beauty of this current generation, they're a lot less tolerant of open hatred and open forms of discrimination, but they still need to understand how 
you know, systemic uh, these vices are and really the underlying reasons to them. Uh, I'll give you an example. There's the Plessy v. Ferguson decision. We always talk about Plessy. We talk about Brown v. Board of Education, right? They're bookends to the story of legalized segregation. Most people don't realize that Homer Plessy, how fair complexion he was, right? He was, he was, he was uh, damn near could pass for white in America, uh, uh, to the point that even the conductor didn't even know that he was a person of color on the train, that Homer Plessy trying to stage a protest uh, against the new rail car laws about segregation had to point out to the conductor, say, hey, man, I'm actually colored. Am I in the right uh, car? And he says, no, if you're colored, you're clear. You're supposed to be in the other car, right? <laughs> and so, but Homer Plessy noticed there were other people who were visibly black on that rail car. He said, well, what about them? He says, they're, they're clearly African-Americans. Don't they belong in the other rail car? And the conductor said, no, they're there to serve the whites so they could stay. And what Homer Plessy realized was it was not about color in America, okay? It was about status. And it was here that if you are willing to be a subordinate in this country to the idea of that whites are supreme, you can stay on that rail car. But if you want to sit on that rail car as an equal, then you have to go sit somewhere else because that idea does not belong here. That's the challenge. That's the underlying reason that we've been fighting in this country over the issues of race for four centuries. And it's at this point, Black Lives Matter is still asking, if you gotta ask, does my black life matter? Then you're asking, why am I not an equal in this society? And that's that longstanding battle that has still um, not been overcome. Thank you, thank you. Um, and uh, and I, uh, you know, like I, I agree. I think that um, we would just do ourselves such a service by spending some time um, learning just more about who we are. And it seems like that learning is really under threat right now, though, right? So um, can can you talk for a minute about why um, our learning about our history and our learning about different cultures that are part uh, you know, and, and histories that are part of our of our overall history in the United States. Why is that so dangerous in the eyes of some people? It's these are difficult conversations, and I think if you still feel there, are, there are people who feel that the study of the American past, particularly as it relates to the experiences of African-Americans or Native Americans, um, uh, that if we study this, there's there's nothing positive to be learned out of this history. It's just essentially going to talk about what one group did to another group. Um, and if you're the group in power um, and you feel like the group in power is also the group that's now being blamed for everything that happened in the past, you're going to say, wait a minute. Uh, why are we teaching this to my children and grandchildren? I, I, I think there should be another way. And the problem is, is that is just a repeat of the exact problem that has created these issues in the first place. We haven't learned how to have that honest conversation. Like we teach Holocaust education in the United States. In many states, they may call it genocide education, so it doesn't have to be specific to the Holocaust, it could be to any genocide. Um, but that's almost taboo if you try to talk about genocide history and the Native American experience. And 
it, it very much would fall into that category. I mean, it's it's not as if we have indigenous people, native people in mass number in the United States, especially as who they were prior to um, um, contact, European contact. And so uh, we don't talk about slavery as a form of genocide history, even though, again, 25 decades uh, it existed in, in our society, 246 years, and the massive impact that it had um, from start to finish. And we still deal with the vestiges of, of slavery today. Uh, one of the vestiges is like the, the badges and incidents of slavery, right? And a badge of slavery is skin color. We still talk about each other as uh, a racial identity that, that extends from the institution of slavery. And so uh, the idea that we talk about these things or have discussions about these things make individuals uncomfortable. And those who are in power have determined that we will not have these conversations, at least not while they are in power. But they don't realize it actually undermines their ability to be more successful, to be more knowledgeable, to be more informed, and actually to get past these very concerns. And there is a story even within the story because their children and grandchildren may not be as receptive to them about the very history that they're trying to keep their kids from learning. And I know this as a college professor because I'm educating a lot of those kids and their parents don't want them to learn the very subjects that we're talking about. So this no, this notion of critical race theory, you know, it's one, it's not in a K through 12 public school. It just doesn't exist. Uh, if I if I heard someone say, uh, well, I'm gonna get rid of critical race theory in all schools, that person might as well say that we're gonna get rid of ghosts in schools. Like there's, there are no critical race theory in, in public schools, but there are American history textbooks that tell you about the past. So like if, if the textbook is talking about Dred Scott and Chief Justice Roger B. Taney, who, who basically decrees that no African-American, no African-American, not enslaved person, but African-American, whether you were enslaved or free, had any citizenship rights in this country, and if they did, none that whites needed to respect. These were the, the chief justice's words. You know, it's at that point, why wouldn't we want our high school youth to learn this history? And what does that actually mean, right? And, and that's, ex, that's extending our understanding of the knowledge of what created a, a racial value gap, an opportunity gap in society. But the interesting thing about Dred Scott is, Dred Scott sued for his citizenship for nearly a decade. Where did he get the money? He's an enslaved person. Well, he got the money from the children of his first slaveholder in Virginia. So Dred Scott ends up in Missouri, and he's actually suing the woman, uh, the widow of, uh, of the person who held him in slavery. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's in this sense, um, he's suing Mrs. Emerson was her name. But it was the children of Peter Blow, Peter Blow is a person who owned Dred Scott in Virginia, that were childhood friends of Dred Scott, that tracked down Dred Scott after they heard he was already suing in the courts, who paid for his legal fees for years. And then even after the Supreme Court said, no, Dred Scott, you are a slave forever until the day you die. It was the Blow sons that went through the ritual of actually purchasing Scott and his wife from Mrs. Emerson to set them free. Now, here were children of a slaveholder who did not believe in slavery, who believed in an anti-racist society, who went through the process of freeing their childhood friend. That's a very different story about Dred Scott. 
But if you only learn about what happened to somebody rather than what people actually did for themselves to change American history, then yeah, it's a story that nobody should be taught, especially if you feel like you still espouse the ideas and the values that want to keep people, in this case, enslaved in the case of Dred Scott, or keep people from knowing what actually happened about slavery in America, our current generation. But you can learn right there in that one story just the the multitude of personalities and ideas about the very concept of slavery, that it wasn't as universal as most people think. And everyday people were chipping away at it all the time, that it didn't have to take a civil war to get rid of it. It did, you know, because the civil war came and it was gone thereafter. Uh, but nonetheless, you see everyday people chipping away at it, not just African-Americans, not just people from the North, but people who grew up even amid the uh, the vice of slavery and knew it was wrong and wanted to do something different when they came of age. How is that any different than present day society when kids are coming of age realizing black lives do matter, but you're trying to use your power to make sure I don't learn anything about that. Well, guess what the response is going to be? People, young minds are going to make their own determinations and they're going to seek out people who can help them become better educated in the process. Our jobs, our jobs as educators is to help our youth reach their highest potential. And when it comes to race in this country, our jobs are the most important jobs in this country because we're going to educate a nation on how to be better. Like they, we need this generation. We have no idea how much we need this generation to want to be better than what we've been in the past. And so it's going to take these lessons and them understanding and accepting these lessons to really radically change our positionality, our understanding, the everyday opportunities and understandings of people who may be unlike themselves in society going forward. So I think we still continue to teach these things because that's the difference between the Black Lives Matter protests and the civil rights movement protests to me, is that in the case of the civil rights movement protests, there weren't as many educators who were available to go and do what we can do today, but we have countless people who are educated in higher education, who have a firm understanding of our American past, who can work and educate with those who espouse the ideas of what it means to support Black Lives Matter and really serve as their educators for a new future. Mm, thank you, thank you. Um, so why are you so passionate about all this work? I, I think some of it, and hopefully you've heard it already, is I, I can see the change in the histories that I have researched and that I write about, um, even when it's only nuanced. Like you, you can see where everyday people who are intentional in their actions can make a difference, not only in the lives of themselves and their immediate others, but the nation writ large. Like I don't think anybody, like when Rosa Parks sat on that bus, I don't think she was thinking, man, 13 years later, we will systematically dismantle segregation by law in the American South and, and, you know, 13 plus Southern states, right? I think she wanted to take a stand for what was right. I mean, and that was what was in her heart in that moment. But she didn't think like, I don't even know what 13 times 365 was, but whatever that number is of days, I don't think she thought that would be the eventual outcome in this regard. So I don't think we need to get caught up on what will be the end result. I think what we need to do is what is right every day 
for our, the rest of our lives. And it is not as hard as people think. Like people say, oh, it's gotta be hard to be anti-racist or it's gotta be hard to, to just do the right thing. And I was like, it's honestly one of the easiest things you can do. And most of us do it every day. But when we're confronted in that moment where we have to make a choice, is it easier just to go along with the problem or is it you know, important to take a stand here and remind people that we can be different, we should be different, we are better than this. I think it's in that moment we have to err on the side of the second one. We have to be better than this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the history that's still untold in this country. Like I would love to see someone uh, draft a history textbook that really speaks to the everyday people that systematically sought effective change in this country for the betterment of other everyday people. Like, where is that story? Like, mm -hmm. uh, the closest history I can think of is, is Howard Zinn's A People's History. Yeah. And so, but somewhere in there, we don't realize that African Americans, for example, they've twice saved democracy in this country. Yes. The first was their actions during this, the Civil War. And the second was their actions during the civil rights movement. And we most likely will be thrice saving democracy in this country because my argument, my discussion, at least in the presentation that I'm going to give, um, uh, uh, which are distinguished lecture series, is talking about the potential opportunity that we have to dismantle racism in this society. No different than slavery and segregation was dismantled by law. And so I think somewhere in there, I see the change. I see even when it's nuanced, but I also see when it becomes momentous and what it can do for our country. Uh, we have leapfrogged in ways that we can't even begin to imagine on some issues that we never thought that we could tackle. And so I think, you know, it's, it's in that sense that we have to begin to rethink the way we think. When I say leapfrog, for example, I think about women's access to higher education. Uh, up, in the up until 1970, very few women had access in any meaningful way to higher education except in uh, select institutions where they were gender specific. And so they could go to an all women's college, things as such. Yale, for example, didn't admit a female uh, student in any meaningful way until 1972, the year I was born. But by 1975, nearly 50% of its uh, uh, freshman class were female. Now, them having access to higher education does not mean that they have equality in the United States. And I think it's very important because the access set the stage for women to have many more resources, opportunities, sense of independence to do things that historically previous generations did not have. And what we're seeing is the slowly chipping away and erosion of the way gender in that binary of men and women had historically defined American society. But you see pushback. You see people saying, no, it should be this and it should be that. Women still have to ask and answer questions that men rarely have to ask and answer. They wonder whether they can have a family and a job at the same mm -hmm. time. These things haven't been automatically removed because someone gained access. But what has changed is the way that people are now accepting women in society, women in higher education, women in leadership positions, and that percentage goes up every year to, toward acceptance rather than denial. And I think the same thing is happening with race, but not at the same kind of market pace. And so how do we kind of push that pace as we go forward? 
All the statistics tell us we're moving in that direction, but how do we leapfrog it? How do we put a stimulus in it? How do we have people gain that acceptance? I think that's what gives me optimism is I see the number going in the right direction, but it's still not as fast as I would like to see it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's, I mean, that's a lot. To, that's a lot to think about. I'm really excited. I, I, I'm going to kind of wrap us up, but my last thing I just wanted to ask you is, you know, with all that we've been talking about, um, I am really excited that you're doing the distinguished lecture uh, for the um, Proctor Institute. And uh, that's on February 24th, just for uh, folks who are listening. And if you want to learn more about it, uh, there are details on the uh, Proctor Institute website. Um, but I guess one thing I just wanted to ask you, Chris, is, um, you know, what um, can you tell us just a little bit more about what the audience uh, for your talk can expect to hear? Don't give it all away, but I'm just, you know, a little bit like a, just get us excited about it. Well, I'm going to walk you through three episodes in American history and um, I know I only have a short amount of time, so I'll be brief in each one of those moments that I walk you through. But underlying each one of those moments is that everyday people, regardless of their circumstances, have the potential to radically change this country for the better. And one generation helped dismantle slavery, as I've been alluding to. Another generation has helped dismantle segregation by law. I do believe that this generation and those going forward will help dismantle racism in society. And what does that mean? Uh, it means that it will, that dismantling will last as long as we are intentional in our efforts to move our society in another direction. That's what my conversation is going to be about. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, I get that foundation from, like I said, my family and everyday people who have helped shape me and given me an opportunity to have the time and the really uninterrupted time and wherewithal to understand these things. And I owe it to them. I mean, they, I don't, I, I've never believed that I am the smartest person or the smartest person in my family, but I, I have had a number of serendipitous moments that have allowed me to become the person I am. And I think I owe it to everyone who came before me, um, who had their own aspirations, but they were cast aside because of the way society demanded they be something different. That in this moment, if I can re help recreate society so another generation doesn't have to be something other than what they wanted to be, I want to do it. And that's what this talk is about. All right. Well, I, I am very excited about it. I can't wait for us to host you. And I just want to say uh, thank you so much for uh, being with us here today. I learned an incredible amount and I hope everybody else who is listening will too. No, I appreciate you, Mary Beth. And I thank you for all that you do. And I look forward to our uh, future conversations in February. All right. Sounds good.